Welcome to the teachings of the Renew Community. We are a family of Jesus followers seeking to be formed into the image of Christ and to join God in the renewal of all things. We meet together weekly in large gatherings and in house churches throughout Bucks and Montgomery counties. If you'd like more information on the Renew Community, feel free to check us out at www.renewcommunity.org. Welcome to another week of the Advent season. I don't know about you, uh, but I'm feeling especially, what's the word? Sentimental? Gooey? I don't know. Uh, I'm very all in on this Advent season. My wife can testify that uh, younger Johnny was not so much into Christmas, just kind of, you know, just kind of being like, ah, it's shallow stuff. But as I've, as I've pushed packs that like criticism, I'm just like, wow, if we really keep it on Jesus, this is a beautiful time, especially seeing it through the eyes of our kids and, and really just pushing out the noise and focusing on the things that are important. I'm starting to have a new appreciation for Advent. I hope you are too. So today, uh, we're going to be looking at one of the greatest bucket lists in the Bible. Uh, through the eyes of Simeon. And I, I have a question for you. Uh, this, so this whole thing kind of took me down this crazy rabbit hole. Uh, if you've ever been on the internet, uh, I was just like, what is a bucket list? Where did that term come from? Turns out there's actually debate when this term started. I was on, the, and again, this is all like Google, so don't quote me on this kind of stuff as like being printed and official. But there are people who are saying that the term bucket list did not come about until this movie in 2007. That can't be right, right? Okay, I was like, I remember 2006 and before, and I feel like when I saw the title bucket list, it was like, oh yeah, that makes sense, I know what that is. But at any rate, there is some mystery as to when this term came about. Some are like, well, it was an electronic engineering term, you know, forever. And I was like, well, I wouldn't have come across it that way. I believe this term was pretty common. And like, raise your hand if you're with me. Like, pre-2006, like, okay. We remember that time. This ain't like back in the early 19th century. Okay. So we have that time. Raise your hand if you've seen this movie, actually. Pretty good movie, right? Yeah. These guys are, you know, looking at death in the face. And they're like, hey, we got things we want to do before we kick the bucket. Well, then that got me thinking, okay, well, where did the term kick the bucket come from? Now it gets real weird, okay? There are different expressions, and I think, my, I think the one that has the most clout is that it was actually a term from the Renaissance where uh, the pig, when you have the pig and you're, and you're like cleaning the pig, that the wood thing is called a bucket. So, you know, after they're doing their, you know, post-mortem dance, we'll call it. The legs are like kicking it. They're like, oh, kicking the bucket. That means you die. Like, wow, this is really cheery. This is why we show up to church on Advent, right, guys? Like, this is from uh, the 13th century, a rendering of the bucket up there. I'm glad I can give you that image. This is very important. <laughs> I know, right? You can't unsee that. Maybe, maybe we just move on from that image there. We're, we're, we'll go back to the bucket movie. How about that? All right. Black screen is great. I want, this is what I want you to do. I want you to share with a neighbor. Do you have a bucket list item? Is there something on your bucket list? I want you to discuss, and then I want to hear a couple. I want to hear a couple shared with the group. So ready? Discuss. Oh, and you can only pick one. That's the rule. Only one. 
Is there anyone who would be willing to share? And this is what we're going to do. Because Joel is ever-present on my shoulder, I have a little Joel on my shoulder all the time. We're going to speak into the mic for the podcast recording. Yes! So responsible. So Kylie is going to run for us. Raise your hand if there is something you want to share. Right over here. And then Denise. Eagles game. Can we just get out of the way? Go, birds. Beat Dallas. That is my bucket list. A W tonight. The Great Wall of China. Ooh, that's a good one. Can we give some snaps for that answer? Humble brag, I've been there. No big deal. All right, next. I know, right? It's oxymoron for sure. I want to record a full-length album of my own music. Can I do that with you? No, just you. Okay, that's fine. I I was intrusive. That's fine. Maybe one more. Oh, the tables have turned. This is good. Uh, Kylie, you can have a seat with the microphone because we're going to have another round in the future. Uh, Mine would actually be to go to Israel. And um, this is an interesting time to say that, obviously. Uh, So maybe sometime in the future. That is the one bucket list item I have. Thank you for asking that question. But this is what I want to show you. As we talk about bucket lists, I want you to imagine that this one bucket list was in your life. It was promised by God in your life. But you didn't know when. And it was constantly yours to seek for. But you had no control over whether it happened or not. Zero. That's the life of Simeon in Luke 2. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to Luke 2. If you want to look on the screen, that's fine. All we need in this next space is we're going to have the text in front of us. We're going to read this story. You can read it here. We're going to read it slowly. And what I want you to do as we're doing this exercise, I want you to picture the details of this story. And in a second, we're going to have a little questions only segment. You know what that means? I want you to ask questions to the group. And it can't be something like, what does this say about transubstantiation? No, like, let's not get theological. Let's get, like, in the moment of, like, ooh, what did it smell like there? Or, like, ooh, how did Mary feel when blank? I'm not going to take any of those away from you. Let's read this together, and then I will open up the mic for some questions. So please participate. Next. It says, and when the time for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Side note, the him is Jesus, little baby Jesus. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and the man was a righteous and devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do according to the custom of the law, 
He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. I'm going to give you 20 seconds to just look over the text, and then I'm going to offer a chance to ask questions that pop to your mind with this story. What were they being purified from? The very first sentence says at the time of purification, what was it that they were being purified from? Excellent question. This story is kind of familiar, right? And if, if you've read it a few times, you know the players in the, in the scene. But I've, always, I've wondered, you have Simeon in the temple waiting. But it's not like when Mary and Joseph walked in. You, presumably, they don't know each other, right? So how does he know who Mary and Joseph and Jesus are, like which child walking in, like how does he know? And then, so then he, he, he is moved by the spirit, he goes to the child and he takes him out of Mary's hands and like, what are the parents thinking? Like what are Mary and Joseph thinking? Like who are you and what are you doing with my child? You ever have that crazy person at the family function, you walk in with your newborn, you're like, I actually don't want you holding that child, yeah. Imagine that with a complete stranger. <laughs> Who else? Up front, and then up front. Um, I was just wondering, the whole gamut of emotion that Simeon feels holding the savior of the world, the prophecy that, prophecy that had come true to him. Yeah. I'm wondering if Simeon is countercultural and that he sees that the Christ is going to bless all peoples. Mm. And, it's a, and the salvation is for the redemption of the world. So it's a much bigger thing, and it's not parochial. Mm. It's not to the, for the people just who sit with themselves, but people who eat with Gentiles. So good. Thank you for sharing. We'll take one more. Denise. I wonder what the significance of the two pair or the pair of turtle doves and the two young pigeons are. Love it. So good. You all raise great questions and your thinking caps are on. Thank you. Thank you, Kylie. Great job. Now, as we're jumping into the story, I want to paint a little bit of a picture of the background of this whole text. We're going to leave those questions unanswered. Some of them will be answered. But for those unanswered, if you're like, wow, that's a good question, I invite you to explore sometime this week in your own Bible time. You see, the temple was a seven-mile walk from Bethlehem, where Joseph and Mary live, to Jerusalem. And uh, I'd actually love to get a picture of the temple up here. Uh, so I, I love jumping into the details of the temple. This is the second temple. So the first temple was built by Solomon after David helped get things started, but it was destroyed in 586 by Babylon, and then as they were taken off to captivity. 
It was a worldwide wonder. People far and wide were coming to see the crown jewel of Jerusalem, and it was leveled. And then you may know the story that towards the end of the Old Testament, as people are being raised up like Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, all of these are key players in building the second temple. Now, after the second temple was built, some people call it Zerubbabel's temple, it was not as grand as the first one. In fact, people were kind of weeping over it, like, this is it, this is all we get. But then Herod, ooh, we know Herod from the story. He's the one that came in and said, we're going to make this thing beautiful. Herod actually put an expansion plan to the temple that began about 20 years before the birth of Christ. Now, the, the temple here is a place where a lot of people would hang out. There would be a lot of things going on outside here. And the, the amazing thing about the temple is there's this funneling process. There's a whittling down of who can enter each space. Out here, you have the court of the Gentiles just outside these walls. Lots of people would travel far and wide to be in this area, especially around festivals. There was a lot of city life going on there. But then as you enter the gate, let's go to the next slide. This is called the women's courtyard. This is where Jewish people only were allowed to enter. See how the process gets narrower and narrower? So there's a lot going on in here. But then as you see this gate right here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up the name here. Uh, the gate up here is Nicanor. I believe I got that right. So as you're looking through here, that gate right there is, is a brief look into the next spot, which we will go to the next slide. This is the court of the priests. This is where the sacrifices were being made. People could look through that gate right there and see what was happening in, in the sacrifices being made here. But then you see that door right here. See how we get lower and lower into the thing? Now we're going into the holy place. Let's go to that next slide. Inside the temple, this is where only the priest could enter. In fact, this is the spot where Zechariah was when he was told about John the Baptist. And through there, you, well, you can see some elements here. You see the menorah, you see the altar of incense, the table of showbread. But through that veil is the Holy of Holies, the place that only the high priest can enter. You see, the reason that Mary and Joseph were coming to this spot is because according to Leviticus 12, 41 days after a boy is born, the first one, you must come to the temple to be purified, to offer this child as to the Lord, to say, hey, kind of like a child dedication that we would have here. Kind of an as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord moment. And what I love about this story is when you read more into Leviticus 12, I believe Denise asked this question, well, why was it two doves? That was such a great detail. Do you know what we learn in this story? According to Leviticus 12, this offering was meant to be a lamb and also a dove or a pigeon. Did you know that if someone was poor and financially unable, there was a concession made for them. They could offer two birds. Jesus came from a poor family. It's fascinating when you start diving into the details of this story. Jump into the story here just to learn a bit more about Simeon and his bucket list. If you turn your attention back to verse 25, it says this. 
there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So this is what we know about Simeon. Number one, he was devout. He was righteous. He was following God. In fact, the Greek word here, I love this. Like, if you're like, oh gosh, Greek, here we go. This is fascinating. They take two words, slam them together. Our word devout really means grasping well. Isn't that fun? He was someone who was grasping well to God. I hope that's said of me someday. We know he was devout. We know he was given a promise by God that he would hold the Christ. And we know that he was constantly looking for that promise. What we don't know about Simeon, number one, was he actually old? Now, the text doesn't say, and usually when you say, like, hey, I did this, now I can die in peace, that usually means you're, you're probably not a spring chicken looking for your next endeavor. Just throwing that out there. Uh, so he was probably old, and church tradition says he was old, but the text doesn't say that. Was he a priest? It's possible. It's possible he was doing work there. But my question really comes down to this. How long did Simeon have to wait for this Messiah? If you know me, sometimes I struggle with patience, especially when uh, I'm looking forward to something. How long did Simeon have to wait for this Messiah? And as we look at the story of Simeon, I want to see two things that we can see through the topic of peace. So as we're talking about peace today, Here's my question. You have a peace that is a lack of or in spite of that kind of peace? Do you have a lack of or in spite of peace? In our modern terms, we're thinking of that word missing there is conflict. Conflict seems to be the enemy of peace. I want you to think right now. In fact, I want you to share with your neighbor. Share with your neighbor one of the most peaceful seasons of your life. If you have a spouse, do it together and be like, oh, wow, that was good. I want you to share with someone, what was the most peaceful season of your life? Maybe it was just two good months. Maybe it was an age when you were younger. What was the most peaceful season of your life? Discuss. Now, as you're sharing with the person next to you, I can almost guarantee that these are some of the qualifiers of this peaceful season. Number one, there was probably less conflict. Probably. Number two, you know, like maybe, like maybe it was a time when you were, I don't know, financially more secure. Or maybe there was that one family member that really gets under your skin that just wasn't getting under your skin at that point. Uh, maybe you just felt more secure in your own skin during that season. Maybe you still believed there was opportunity in this world and you could carve out your own place, but that seems like long ago. You see, this type of peace that you're looking back on, if you're saying that was a peaceful season, it's probably because there was a lack of conflict most times. That's kind of that lack of conflict peace where we're kind of like, okay, it's peaceful and it's doing its job. When you're out on a boat and it's still water, like, I mean, it's peaceful. It's doing its job. Kind of think of that as like a 
kind of like a tumbler. Some of you guys are big water bottle people, right? Everywhere you go. My wife is a heavy drinker <laughs> of water, guys. Yes, right here. Now, I remember a time where, uh, where the, like, the, the vacuum technology of this stuff is insane, right? Uh, there'd be a time where she would be like, hey, check this out, ready? It was like six hours ago, still ice. And I'm like, okay, that's not that impressive. Like, it's a thermos, you know what I mean? Like, it was sitting inside. It's doing its job. That's kind of what I think of in that kind of peace, where it's peaceful, so you're peaceful. Okay, you're doing your job. But then later, we go into a place for over an hour and a half, two hours. It's in the blazing hot car. And then we come out in the car and she's like, hey, Johnny, guess what? Still got ice. I'm like, okay, that's a little impressive because it's hot out here, but you know, yeah, it's a little more impressive. But then there are these moments which we will witness right here. Everybody's so concerned about if the Stanley spills, but what about the melts? It's in a fire yesterday, it still has ice in it. I don't know if you heard this in the news a couple of weeks ago. The Stanley Cup was so good that it endured a fire. It endured a car fire. So if you want to buy a really durable thing, if you're like going to be hiking on the face of the sun, take your cup. It'll last. You won't, okay? Like, so this woman put out this video as like a, hey, if you're thinking about Stanley, look at mine. Survived a car fire. Fun fact, they actually bought her a car to replace it. Isn't that fun? So good. Genius. Marketing, because we're talking about it. Some of you are going to be getting some stocking stuffers, I'm telling you. But can I tell you something? I can't think of a better image for peace in the midst of conflict. Right? A car fire in this thing. And then she comes and she's like, hey, guys. Still there. Imagine that in your life. Imagine in the midst, instead of saying a peaceful season is the lack of conflict, what if it still have an ice in your soul, though there's flame outside? That is true peace. Imagine if you were to say, guess what? Election 2024 coming up. Still got peace. Now, some of you, this is kind of a foreign concept, right? Like, we're very, we're very impacted by the things that are going around us. When the flame gets up, the ice inside melts. That's the normal reaction. But I'm here to tell you that it is possible with clinging to God to still have it. You're still able to have that peace. After you put an offer in on the house and you didn't get the one and you thought it was perfect and it fell through. You can still have peace. You can have peace the whole time. That loved one is in the hospital. You can have peace as you're looking towards the future, as you're thinking of that relationship that gives you heartache. All of these situations, you can still have peace in spite of the flame. That is a peace that is in spite of conflict. And it's the peace that is offered to us because we indwell the Holy Spirit. He is within inside of us. So if he's in there, so can the ice. Now, folks, I'm speculating a little bit because we know Simeon was a devout man. 
He was an amazing guy we see in here. We don't know how long he had to wait. We don't know a lot about him. I wish I had like a full chapter on his life because I'm fascinated. I wonder if as he was given this promise supernaturally by God, I wonder if there was a moment where you start to hear, hear the little whispers in your ear. Did God really say you're going to do it or like you're going to see it in your lifetime? Are you really going to live this long? Dude, you might die next week. Is the Messiah really going to come along? All these little whispers to peck away at that trust in God and to erode that peace. I imagine he was someone that in spite of the flame, he still held his peace. But in our life, there can be things where time, where doubt, where it doesn't look like it's going the right way can erode at what we believe in the promises of God. Maybe you've experienced, maybe, I mean, I sure have in my life. Whereas we go through, we start to think like, man, God, I see this in your word, but is that actually how it plays out? Are you actually going to come through for me? And we start to feel the peace shrink. When it comes to the topic of peace, I want to be, I love this word. I say it a lot. I want to be unflappable. Say unflappable for me. Isn't that fun? Wakes up the lips, you know. Do it again. Ready? Unflappable. I want to be a person that when the temperature is cranked up, I'm steady. I'm trusting. I can't be flapped. Maybe to take inventory of your own internal tumbler, can I ask you some questions? When things rise up, when the conflict gets cranked up, are you someone who's able to think logically and steady? Or are you someone who's ready to just jump in for the fight? Might be a lack of peace. When things rise up, are you able to calm yourself down on the truth of God and the promises we see in him and, and see if what he says is actually going to come through? Or does your mind start to race? Do these situations change who you are? Do you automatically jump to disaster-proving everything so that way your plan B is set in case God doesn't come through? Some of you, you forfeit your peace instantly because you jump into fix-it mode in case God doesn't show up. It leads to a lack of peace. Maybe in conflict, you withdraw. I don't know. But I believe the Bible calls us to be unflappable in those moments. To take God at his word and say, God, if you're true and you're who you say you are, you're going to have to prove it, and I don't have to strive. So the first thing we see is that, is that peace where conflict wants to erode at it. But here's the second thing I want you to see. There's good news too. A fulfilled promise by God is the best exhale. Ready? Breathe deep. Exhale. When God shows up, breathe deep. Exhale. When God's promise comes through, when everything that is true came to be, that's a great moment. That's when you can really exhale. And we see one of the greatest exhale moments in this scripture as we're going to jump back into verse 27. 
It says, And he came in the spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do to him according to the custom of the law. He took him in his arms and blessed God. He said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He was able to exhale because the bucket list item was complete. God supernaturally moved through him in a time where the spirit wasn't freely offered to everyone like it is now. But he caught a glimpse, and I'm glad you said this, because what he did see is that now the light to the Gentiles, it was starting to come to be. The things that Isaiah wrote about, that the the Old Testament prophets hinted at as a light to the world, people would read that and be like, yeah, okay, I guess that's nice. But now it was like, oh, I didn't know you meant this. The picture was becoming clearer. His bucket list item was checked. The comfort of Israel, the consolation of Israel was there in the form of the baby. Check. But the surprise was that it was the revelation to the world. Check. And I think verse 33 shows us just how much this is starting to sink in for his parents. Read in verse 33, it says this. It says, and his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Could it be that they marveled that this baby who they thought was the consolation of Israel was now the consolation for the world? That this was the start of a plan that would trickle 2,000 years and be offered to us? Because without this, we're all still in bed making breakfast. It's because of Jesus we come together because he's the consolation of the world. I love it. They're like, wow, this Messiah thing is really getting big. People are starting to know about it. They marveled because news is getting out. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, a sword will pierce your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Folks, Jesus, his life in Israel and in the world is drawing a line in the sand. And he's saying, listen, this is a gift offered freely to you, but you got to accept it. The message of Jesus, it was received by some during his day, but for others, it pushed them further away. The life of Jesus was a line in the sand. And the sorrow in Mary's heart would be to see the ministry take the toll on her son. To see your son die in front of your eyes. A hideous death. And to be there every step of the way. But to also realize the gospel is extended to you as his mother. That is the beauty that we see. If we can get this last picture up here, I want to leave you with this image here. I love this picture. It has it all. It has him holding the baby. It has has him as the savior of the world. You can picture that exhale, the peace that comes when God fulfills his promise. 
And as we're shutting this thing down, this is the last thing I want to offer to you. It's actually Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 to 7. This constantly goes through my mind. Constantly. When it comes to a time where I'm losing my peace, a time where I want to fret, I want to like jump into fix-it mode, like, you know, I want to just like have everything in a row. When I do what I need to do according to the word of God, when I line up with what he's saying, it's this. Don't be anxious about anything. That's enough to work on for the year 2024. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Folks, this is a prayer that I remember my dad praying over me most nights. Peace that passes all human understanding. It was prayed over me, and I want to offer it to you. In those moments, when your peace wants to be robbed, when you want to jump into do it, fix it, fret mode, can you turn your prayers to be the cause for, I'm sorry, turn your problems into prayer? Can you turn off the radio and just drive in silence, focusing your attention to God? Can you carve out five minutes, a little bit more, to turn your attention towards God? Can you put the yellow pad away and turn your attention towards God? If you can do this, you can remember his faithfulness, his blessings, and how he is in control of your seemingly out-of-control life. Anyone can experience peace when times are peaceful. But also, anyone can experience peace when times are not peaceful. Which will you choose? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we'll be unflappable people of peace. Pray that we will turn to prayer and not to zoning out in front of the TV. Not to food. Not to the counsel of friends even before you. Pray that you will be our first thing that we turn to. Forgive us for the moments that we try to do in our own strength. Allow us to rely on you this Christmas season. It's in your name. Amen.